Well, let's just pray for a minute. Let's take a moment of stillness, and then we'll hear a bit more about God's sovereignty. Almighty God, believing in your sovereignty, we believe that we are meant to be here in this building tonight together. And we believe, Lord, that you have something to say to us through the scriptures about yourself. Lord, we recognize tonight that you are incomprehensible, that, that we cannot fully understand you, that we cannot fully understand your ways. And so we do admit tonight, Lord, that we will feel a little bit confused. We will have questions even after we understand your sovereignty better. But Lord, we would ask that you would still have a very clear message for us tonight, one that would make a, a deep difference in our lives. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is a sovereign? Um, whenever I was a teenager, I thought it was a ring. You know the sovereign rings? My dad had one of them, but uh, that is not a sovereign. A sovereign is a king. A sovereign is a ruler. That's what a sovereign is. So whenever you think of sovereign, whenever I think of sovereign, the first place that we go to is the person who is a king. And a king has two, not, not so much today, but, but back in the, the times when kings ruled and reigned, there were two characteristics of kings. The first one is that they had authority to rule. They had authority to rule. They were in this position where they'd been given authority in the Bible by God to rule, or in other places, they'd been given authority through their, their lineage to rule. Or they'd been given authority because they'd wiped out the previous king and they claimed this authority for themselves. But a sovereign is someone who has authority to rule. And also, sovereigns of old and kings of old, they not only had authority to rule, but they were in complete and utter control. Today, we have the government, and so the queen is not just someone who says something, but there's a government who sit under her. But back in times past, the king's word was final. The king was in complete and utter control. And so what does it mean tonight whenever we say that we believe that God is sovereign? Well, it really means those two things. We believe that God has authority to rule, and he has that authority because he made everything. He, he is the king of it. He's the owner of it, so he has authority to rule. But also we believe tonight that God is in control. And really, you see that last little bit? God is in control. If you take away nothing else tonight, like nothing at all, that's really all I want you to take away this evening. I'm not saying this to boast, but did you know that I have a YouTube video which has over 43,000 views? Yep, I have gone viral. I am a star. Hey, 43,000, that's nothing in YouTube. But it's a song. It's a kid's song. And I made it a lot of years ago with, with some children. And the song, the chorus of the song goes like this. Oh, I keep singing in church. I don't know why. I've done this a number of times in sermons and I get a slagging for it, but I'm going to do it anyway. But it goes like this. It says, remember the Lord, oh, Remember that he is in control. Remember the Lord, oh, he's watching his children. He cares, oh, remember the Lord, oh, oh. Catchy, isn't it? Yeah, and, it, and it's that first bit. Remember the Lord, oh, remember that he is in control. That is tonight, that is the song 
that I want to be playing over in your mind tonight as you go home. If nothing else from this sermon, if you get nothing else out of it, if you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, if you fall asleep because it's too hot, I don't care as long as you have that song playing in your mind tonight as you go home. Because this is the the big idea of God being sovereign. He is in control. And we're to remember that when life is difficult. He's in control whenever we look at the world around us and it seems like it's falling apart. He's in control when we go through difficulty and hardship. He's in control when we go through suffering. And not only is He in control, but because He's good, He cares for you in the middle of what you're going through. I guess you could all leave now. You've got the message of the sermon. Remember the Lord. Oh, remember that He is in control. He's watching His children He cares for you. Tonight, if that's all you get, I will be a happy man. But I might be shortchanging you a wee bit if I just let you go now. So we're going to look at a little bit more of the detail of God's sovereignty. And the first question we're going to ask tonight is, well, what exactly is God in control of? If God is the one who is in control, what is God in control of exactly? What is the scope of His sovereignty? I haven't put the texts on your passage, on your, your sheet, but, but there are some parts of the Bible which make it clear or, or say very clearly that God is actually in control of everything. That's what the Bible claims. Let me read a couple of passages. They're, they're not in your, your leaflet. Sorry about that. I only put them in before coming here tonight, so apologies. But here's what it says. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians says that, that everything that happens, all things, in all things, God is working out the counsel of His will. Another passage says the same thing, that God does what He pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all He pleases. And then Job, and Job you're going to see tonight, we're going to quote an awful lot because it is lots of questions raised about God's sovereignty. But Job says this, Job 42 verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What the Bible seems to suggest is that God is in control of everything, of absolutely everything. And we're going to see some of these things on your sheet. So first of all, he he seems to be in control of things that we don't immediately think of. I mean, I certainly don't think of God. When I think of being in control, I kind of think of Him being in control of very big things. But God seems to be in control of even the littlest details. Look at Job 37, verses 6 to 13. Let me read this for you. Look at this. Look how Job says that God is in control of the elements. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth. And to the rain, shower, be a mighty downpour. It rains so much in Northern Ireland. That's a downpour a lot here. Verse 7, so that everyone he has made may know his work, he stops all people from their labor. The animals take cover, they remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber, the cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. 
At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to whoever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water his earth and show his love. See the things that that Job says God has control over there? The elements, the rain, the snow, the lightning. Then in the Psalms, we see that he's control over the grass growing. Look at that. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. These little tiny details, the Bible says that, that God is somehow in control of them. Now, we know the scientific reason why clouds form. We know the scientific reason why rain falls. In fact, we can predict the weather. We can know what's coming. Scientists can study it and, and know what's going to happen. We know about photosynthesis. We, we know why grass grows. But what the Bible says is that alongside these natural explanations, there is a kind of underpinning explanation for these things. And it's that God himself causes them to happen. There is what's called concurrence. These two things run in parallel. God causes them to grow, but also there are very helpful natural explanations for them. But you see, whenever you go to cut your grass, and mine is growing like wildfire at the minute. Don't come around to the manse at the moment or you'll be ashamed of me. All the, all the daisies popping up. But God is even in control of my grass growing. He's so involved in controlling what happens on earth. What other things is God in control of, which I didn't really think about before? Well, what about animals? <laughs> now, I haven't put any text there, but I'm going to tell you some stories in the Bible that if you've read the Bible or know a bit about it, yeah, I imagine you'll know these stories. First of all, what about the plagues in Egypt? Do you remember what God did there? He sent flies and he sent gnats and he sent frogs. God had this control over the, the tiniest of little creatures. Able to send them in plagues into Egypt. Then we have the ravens. Do you remember where they come? Elijah is down by the brook and he's hungry. And what happens? God sends the ravens down to feed him. And then you got one of my uh, all-time kind of funniest Bible stories. And uh, tonight, men, if you have a receding hairline, this one's for you. There's Elisha, isn't there? And Elisha, we're told, is a bald man. And some youths, they taunt Elisha. Look at you, you baldy. Read the text. It's pretty much that. And what does God do? He sends a, he sends a lion <laughs> to chase them and tear them apart. <laughs> pretty brutal, but, but God is in control of this lion that he sends to, to chase these youths away. And we got the best story of all, I think, when it comes to an animal. There's Jonah. And God sends the fish to swallow him up and save him. Then we've got Daniel, and he's in the lion's den. And what does God do? He shuts the mouths of the lions. That shouldn't have happened. They should have had him. Then we've got Jesus and Peter, and they've been given a hard time about paying the tax. And what does God do? He sends a fish with a temple tax in it, with Caesar's tax in it. They take the coin out, and they, they pay the tax. Whenever we read the Bible, it seems that the Lord even has control over the, the, the animal world, that he's able to control even the animals which we all think is being untamable and uncontrollable unless they're dogs or cats or house creatures. What else is the Lord in control of? Well, it seems that he's even in control of random things. 
things that you, you look at and you think that is just completely and utterly random. That, that is all down to chance. There, there's no way, there's, there's no control there. It's all down to chance. And we see that in Proverbs. It says there, the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord. Now, maybe you're wondering, Marty, what is a lot? And what does it mean it's cast into a, a, a lap? And back in biblical times, it seems that sometimes people needed to make a decision. And, and they didn't know what to decide. Maybe there were two good things. They weren't sinful. They were, they were both good to do. And they didn't know what to do. What they would do is they would cast lots. It's a bit like flipping a coin. Heads, I moved to England. Tails, I stay in Belfast. Let's flip the coin and see. It seems like chance. But the Bible says that, that the Lord is even in control of the flipping of a coin for a decision. John Piper is someone who's a, a pastor in the States. He's retired. But, but he says this, and I, I love this. He says that God controls every dice roll in Las Vegas. <laughs> that is the extent to his sovereignty. The things that we put down to chance, the Lord is in control of. I imagine tonight, as, as you think about your life, there are things that have happened to you that have been so significant. In fact, they've, they've maybe been completely life-changing. And when you tell people about them, it just sounds like chance. Oh, that was lucky. That was good fortune, wasn't it? Do you have those things? Maybe tonight, did, did you meet the person that you ended up marrying by chance? Did you end up having that job opportunity by chance? No, no, no. The Bible says that the Lord is even the one who was in control of that and gave you that. There is no such thing as luck according to the Bible. Everything is under the control of God, even those things that seem so random and so, so, so sort of like chance. What other things then is the Lord in control of? Well, he, he's also in control of some very big things, according to the scriptures. One of them is the affairs of nations. Again, in the book of Job, it says this, God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. And then again in the Psalms, we see this, dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. And by the way, can I just say, I've only given selected scriptures tonight because if I was to give all of the scriptures for all of these things, we'd be here for days, never mind half an hour. But the Bible makes it really clear that, that the Lord is even sovereign over the nations. I don't know about you, but, but that really gives me a lot of comfort. Because as I see governments, making what seem to be terrible decisions. As I see some nations where, where human rights are atrocious, and it seems that there can ever be an end to those things, as I look at the world and as I see nations and governments doing things that, that disappoint me or frighten me or make me a bit wary, I can find great confidence knowing that the Lord is in control even of those things and that He can bring nations down and that he can bring nations up. The Lord is in control of the affairs of nations. Now this next one, it's, it's very personal. The Bible also seems to affirm that, that the Lord is in control and sovereign even over our lives, even over our very lives. 
Look what it says there. It says that the Lord has planned our days. Look what David says. He says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Oh, God says, David, you are the one who planned when I would be born. Before I was born, you planned that I would be born, and and you planned the days that I would live. Then in Job, as Job says, he says that man's days are determined and that the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Job says, listen, Lord, you see, when it comes to people, you've decided how long they're going to get. You've decided to the very month how long they will live. You, Lord, are in control of, of how long a person stays on earth, how long their heart beats, how long they, they live. Then in Galatians, again, we we see this. Galatians, Paul says that God had set him apart before he was born, Galatians 1.15. And then Jeremiah says the same thing. Before I was formed you in the womb, God says to him, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The Lord has planned our days. The Lord knew the time we'd be born, and the Lord knows the time he'll take us home. He is sovereign over the very lifespan of our lives. Now, what that doesn't mean is that you should eat ulster fries every day and be unhealthy because, you know, God's decided when you're going to die anyway. That's not what it's saying. It doesn't doesn't negate human responsibility. But ultimately, our times, as the psalmist says, are in God's hands. God is also the one who directs our lives. And again, we see this in the Proverbs A man's steps are ordered by the Lord, Proverbs 20, 24 says. Proverbs 16, verse 9, a man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We all have big plans, don't we? We all make plans, and that's good, and that's right. We should make plans. We should decide we're going to do some things. We, We should have goals, and we should have ambitions. We should live our lives to the full. And the great news is that as we make plans, ultimately it is the Lord who will direct our steps. He'll bring us along the path that He wants us to go. Again, some of you sitting here tonight, you have had doors close on you. Doors that you you hoped would open and you've had them closed. And at the time they were closed and you were so bitterly disappointed. But then the Lord opened up a, a new door And you walked through that. And through that new door was was a life or things that you could never have expected or imagined or dreamed. And similarly tonight, maybe you're here and it's been the opposite way. Maybe the door didn't open and it hasn't opened. Well, you can trust tonight that, that even though there is a disappointment and a hurt there, that the Lord is still directing your steps and you're in His plans and in His will. What else is the Lord sovereign over? He's sovereign over our talents and our abilities. Again, we see that in 1 Corinthians. Oh, I've missed one. Success and failure. We'll just skip that. I won't read the passages, but he's he's sovereign over our success and our failure. If we succeed at things, it's because the Lord has caused us to succeed. And if we fail, it's because he's caused us to fail. He's, He's sovereign over those things. He's also sovereign over our talents and our abilities. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says this, 
What have you that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Everything you have, all your talents, all your abilities, everything you own, ultimately it's a gift from the Lord. And there's one other key thing which I haven't put on your sheet. There's another key thing which the Lord is in control over and sovereign over, and it's our salvation. It's our salvation. The Bible makes it so clear that, that God is the one who has brought us to faith in His Son. We'll get on to it whenever we come to, to preaching through Acts, hopefully in September. But it says this in, in Acts 13, 40. We, he, he preaches and, and people become Christians. And then it says this, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All those people who God had appointed to eternal life, they in turn believed the gospel. The Bible gives this, this sweeping picture of God's control and it is complete and utter and absolute. The Bible seems to suggest that there is nothing that the Lord is not under, uh, under his control. But this tonight then leaves us with some very big and very challenging questions. Uh, and even as we talk about these questions, you're going to have more questions. Uh, and even as I sum up the sermon in five or ten minutes, you're still going to have more questions. So, but let's, let's take a look at some of these questions. The first question is this. Well, okay, Marty, if God is in control uh, and he's in control of all things, what about free will then? Are you saying, Marty, that, that God, if, if he's in control of everything, that, then what about free will? Are you saying that we do not have free will? That's a big question, isn't it? Well, the Bible seems to have an answer that's kind of, um, well, complicated. And the first part of the answer is that yes, the Bible affirms that we do have free will. And we know this by experience. You can do whatever you want. You see, if you wanted to, right now you could stand up on your pew and say, Marty, will you just be quiet? I don't want to listen to this anymore. I want to get out into the sun. You, you could do that, right? Please don't. Please don't. Be really, be really rude, especially in church. But you could. You're not constrained by anything. You, you can do anything, good or bad. You have control over what you say. You have control over what you do. You're free as far as you're aware to do anything you want. We, we don't feel any constraints. We don't feel like we're robots. We feel completely and utterly free. So, so the Bible on one hand, it, it actually does say that, that we're free. It seems to affirm that we're free and, and we have that in our experience. Even when it comes to salvation, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a free offer. Anyone can do it, right? Anyone can call on the name of the Lord. The guys living down the street here who know nothing about Jesus, we can tell them about Jesus, and they are free to call on the name of the Lord. On one hand, the, the Bible, it seems to affirm that, that we're completely and utterly free. <laughs> but yet at the same time, the Bible also affirms that God is completely and utterly sovereign and in control. 
And this is really hard to get our heads around. The theologians call this compatibility. And it's the idea that, that our free will is completely compatible with God's will. That the two go together, that God is, is actually carrying out His will even as we carry out what we believe is completely and utterly free will. Completely lost, are you? It's just confusing. And again, we, we see this in, in terms of salvation. I want you to imagine, I've used this illustration before, but maybe you've forgotten it or maybe you weren't here. Um, there are no pearly gates in heaven. Sorry to get your hopes up. All those jokes don't have it right. But, but I want you to imagine that there's pearly gates in heaven. And, and you're great. You're, you're so delighted because you're one of the people who's going to get to walk through them. And you're walking up and, and there it is. There's the, the top of the arch. Look, do you see it up there? It's nice, isn't it? And you see the words? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, I called upon the name of the Lord. Out of free will, I chose Jesus and I've been saved. That is brilliant. And then you walk through the gates and you think, I wonder what's on the other side of those gates. And, and you look and you see the other side and there it is. <laughs> look what's up there. You did not choose me, but I chose you from before the foundation of the earth. <laughs> there was me walking through thinking, out of free will, I chose Christ. And there at the same time, I'm finding out that Christ chose me. This is a mystery. And if nothing else, over these past four Sunday nights, I hope you've seen that as Christians, we must live with mystery. We must live with it. But whenever it comes to God's sovereignty, we can be assured that we can do our, our free will. We, we're not constrained, but at the same time, this is completely compatible with his will. Okay, enough of that. Let's move on <laughs> to an even more difficult question. <laughs> oh. And this one really is difficult. Marty, what about sin? And what about evil? What about sin and what about evil? If God is in control, if God is sovereign, then, then how do we understand sin and evil in the world? And some people, they, they like to think that, that, that sin and evil are in the world because God has kind of stepped out. So it's kind of like God is sitting in heaven and uh, he's just kind of watching the world and, and letting it get on with itself. It's like he's wound up the clock, you know, he's got everything started and then he's letting the clock wind down and he just lets whatever happened happen. Some people like to think of God like that, distant and far off and not really in control, but one day going to come back and sort everything out. Some people like to think that it, it makes them feel kind of a, not happier, but a bit more content about sin and evil. You know, it's because God's not involved. But the problem with that view is that it's just nowhere in the Bible. It's nowhere there's not even one verse <laughs> that would suggest that's the case. You know, the Bible affirms that, that, that God is somehow sovereign even over sin and even over evil. And tonight I, I want to suggest that there, there are two main views, and, and I, I'm not going to say which one I'm, I'm falling into, but I want to give you two main views tonight. Uh, and you can go away and you can think more about them. But, but listen, you see, even if you don't get them, remember the Lord 
Okay? Here's the first view. The first view is that God ordains evil and sin to fulfill His sovereign will. So the first view is that, that God actually ordains sin and ordains evil, that He plans it, that He plans it as part of carrying out His sovereign will. And, and one of the things about this is that there are lots of scriptures that, that seem to actually back this idea up. It might be very, very uncomfortable. In fact, it is uncomfortable. But there are scriptures that, that seem to back up this idea. And if you read Wayne Grudem's book, you'll see that there are way more than, than even I'm looking at tonight. But let's think about some of the examples. We have Joseph, don't we? Do you remember Joseph? And what was God's plan for Joseph? God's plan for Joseph was that he would go to Egypt and that he would ultimately save God's people from starvation. That was the plan. But do you remember how, how God took him there? He caused his brothers to hate him. They wanted to kill him. Then they did wrong when they cast him into the pit. Then they did wrong when they sold him into slavery. And yet, what could Joseph say? He said that God sent me here before you to preserve my life. What you meant as evil against me, but the Lord meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Listen, guys, brothers, you meant evil. But God, through this whole thing, was working out his sovereign will that I would save your lives. It seems that that was in the plan of God to bring Joseph to Egypt. Another place where it's even more explicit uh, and maybe even more tricky is whenever David sinned. Do you remember David? He, and he, 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 ha, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and, and he got her pregnant and then he brought his her, her husband back from war and he had him killed on the front line and he really did nothing about it he was just trying to live his life ignoring that sin and then God brought Nathan the prophet along to him and Nathan pronounced judgment upon David and listen to what Nathan said and these are the words of the Lord being spoken through Nathan he said I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. That's very explicit. David, here is what I am going to do. I'm going to rise up evil against you. I'm going to send people who are going to take your wife and commit adultery with her before your eyes. I'm going to do this in front of all Israel and before the sun. God here seems to be rising up purposely something evil in his sovereign plan for David. And then there's the most obvious one. There's the death of Jesus Christ the most abhorrent evil, to take the sinless Son of God and falsely accuse Him, to take the sinless Son of God and have Him 
flogged and beaten and a crown of thorns stuck into his head to spit upon him and jeer at him and mock him, to have him nailed and murdered on a cross. It is an abhorrent act of evil. And yet, what was it? It was part of God's will and God's plan for the salvation of the world. One view of God's sovereignty over evil is that He ordains it. That He he, he plans it as part of His plan and part of His purposes. That God actually ordains sin and evil. Now, it's really interesting because the Bible at the same time says that God is not the author of sin and He can't be blamed for sin and He can't be blamed for evil. But yet the flip side of that coin is that God at times seems to be ordaining it for His purposes. And this leads to, to very, very hard implications. Let me read you a quote from John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's found in Book 1, Chapter 17, uh, Paragraph 5, and it says this. So he's, he's thinking about God's sovereignty, and he's thinking in, in terms of God ordaining evil and sin as part of his plan, and he says this. Thieves and murderers and other evildoers are instruments of divine providence, being employed by the Lord Himself to execute judgments which He has resolved to inflict. That is uncomfortable reading, isn't it? But this was John Calvin's understanding of God's sovereignty in evil and sin. The Lord Himself to execute judgments which he has resolved to inflict. And there are others who, 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 who believe this too, and I think that the position of the Presbyterian church is, is closest to this idea that, that God actually ordains sin and evil in his plans and in his purposes. Now, I don't need to defend God tonight. If this is what God does, this is what God does. And he is sovereign, and he has a right to do as he wishes. And as uncomfortable as it might be for us, and as uncomfortable as we might feel by this idea, if this is how God works, this is how God works. And we cannot question him. But there is another view, and it's another popular view, and I want to also give you this view tonight. And it's the, the other idea is that, that God doesn't necessarily ordain sin and evil, but that he permits it. And there is a difference here. It's that God permits sin and evil that will ultimately end in his purposes being fulfilled. So, so he lets sin and evil happen, sin and evil that will ultimately fulfill his purposes. So, so there's a difference. And again, we, we also do see this in Scripture. Um, in the Bible Project, which I have had to bin my wonderful five-year plan to go through the Bible. Coronavirus has wrecked it. But if you remember in the Bible project, we, we touched on Job. And we also did it a few times on suffering. Do you remember with, with honor a couple of years ago? And, and we talked about suffering. And if you remember in the book of Job, terrible evil and suffering happens to Job. And it happens at the hand of Satan, the enemy of God. But right at the beginning of Job, what we see is not that God approaches Satan and says to Satan, Satan, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and inflict suffering on Job. No, it's the, 
It's the other way around. Satan goes to God and he says, look at your servant Job. God, he he only worships you and adores you because you protect him and you look after him. God, let, let let me harm him and see how he responds. And the Lord puts some boundaries on what Satan can do, but the Lord gives him permission to do it. The Lord has him on a, on a leash. He's, he's not free to do what he wants exactly. But the Lord permits evil and sin as part of his plans and as part of his purposes. So this is the, the second view. That the Lord allows it. That he permits it. On a micro level, think of ourselves here. When we sin, the Lord permits it, doesn't he? When, when we rebel against him, the Lord lets us. And why does he let us? Well, if this second view is right, it's because ultimately it will fulfill his purposes and his plans for us and in the world. Uh, there's a really helpful illustration to, to kind of get this idea across. And I think you've probably got a clue what it's about. It's about chess. I want you to imagine that there is a a master chess player. He is the, or she is the world champion. She is the best chess player in the world. She's just amazing. She can beat everybody hands down. And this champion chess player, she's playing a novice. She's playing me, someone who really has no idea how to play the game very well. Well, as the master chess player plays the game, no matter what the novice does, even if the novice does something that, that they weren't expecting, even if the, the master chess player didn't quite expect the novice to do this, they still know how to respond, don't they? Whatever move the novice makes, the master chess player still fulfills the purpose of winning the game. Nothing thwarts the master chess player. Nothing stops her winning. And that's like the illustration in the second view. It's that people are permitted to sin and they sin and they willfully sin and they they go their own way, but the Lord can still override all of it and override all the evil to bring about good and to bring about his glory. Sure, you've nearly had enough. But what I want you to do tonight is to remember the Lord. Remember that he is in control. Remember the Lord. Remember that he's watching his children and that he cares for you. And tonight what I want to do is just to help you think about one big application of God's sovereignty. And the one big application is this, is that if we come to believe that God is sovereign, we might struggle to get our heads around it Maybe all of that stuff that I've talked about, that's just too much for you. You don't get it. But if you can believe at the very basic level of that children's song that the Lord is in control and that he cares for you, if you can get that into your head that he is in control, then tonight what that will do for you is it will lead you to a place of comforting trust. Charles Spurgeon He's really good at those illustrations. He was the one who talked about the pearly gates on, but he's got another brilliant line. 
And he says this, he says, God's sovereignty is the pillow upon which the Christian rests his head. God's sovereignty is the pillow upon which the Christian rests his head. And tonight, if we can believe that the Lord is sovereign, even if we don't get all the details, if we can believe that that children's song version, it will bring us to a place of comforting trust. Whenever you experience evil, whenever you are the recipient of something terrible, the Lord doesn't say that you must just blindly accept it. He doesn't say you can't grieve about it. He doesn't say you can't speak to the police about it. He doesn't say you shouldn't do something about it. God's sovereignty does not mean that you're not responsible for how you respond to things. If you're in an abusive relationship at home, God's sovereignty does not mean that you sit there and endure that. No, you're free to go and seek help. But if you're on the end of evil, believing God's sovereignty in the middle of it, in the middle of the pain and the hurt, can be such a comfort. Oh Lord, this has been horrendous and awful and I don't like that I've faced it. But in the midst of it, I'm going to believe that you can bring something good from it that you'll fulfill your plans, that, that you'll be glorified through it? Or what about whenever we look back? Whenever we look back on our lives, there's not one person in here tonight who doesn't look back on something with regret. Sure, there's not, there, there's not one of us in here tonight who doesn't look back and think, you know what, I, I wish I'd never done that. Or that was a terrible decision I made. We all look back tonight, don't we, at, at different things in our past with regret. But yet, if we can actually get our heads around that, that God is in control, suddenly we come to a place of saying, Lord, you know, I regret those things, but, but I believe that you're still in control over them. And I believe that where I am right now is exactly where you want me to be. I thank you, Lord, that even though I regret those things, that, that you've got me where you want me. Suddenly, that regret might still be there, but it's, it's not as painful and not as difficult to live with. And when we're suffering, it's the same thing. Lord, I, I thank you that even though I don't like this, that you're sovereign over it and that you can use it somehow for your glory and for your purposes. And the last one is when we fear death. There is a time when we fear death. Some of us, we, we think about the future and, and we think about death and it's scary and it's, it's frightening. The fear of death is, is such a big deal for all of us. But if we can grasp that our life is in God's hands and that we will not go before the point that He has ordained, then suddenly we will be able to live a life where we're not as afraid and not as scared. And I want to help you understand that by, by just giving you a, 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 lovely, a lovely part of a film. There's a 2000 film called Gods and Generals, and it's about the American Civil War. Uh, and the Confederates are, are fighting the Union troops. Uh, and there's a small group of Confederates, and there's this huge army of, of Union troops coming. 
and they all start to retreat, and the battle gets, gets really heavy, and it's, it's just terrible, and all the, the, the Confederates, they're all retreating, and they're all in fear, and they're scared that they're going to die. And just as they're retreating, a couple of them notice their general, General Jackson, he's called in the movie. And as war is raging all around them, as the, as the Union trips are coming, as they're all fearing for their lives, he's sitting steady and erect on his horse. He is serene <laughs> in the middle of all of this. His hand's bleeding. He's been, you know, he's been shot with a musket. He's, a musket ball's hit him. He's bleeding. But yet he's, he's standing there steadfast. And, and one of the men, they notice this and say, hey guys, look. Look at, look at Jackson standing like a stone wall. Look at him. And they all look at this man and he's, he's not afraid. In fact, he's just riding up and down trying to give orders. He's not flinching. From that day on, he would be known as Stonewall Jackson. The men, they, they get kind of rallied by what he's done. They, they get rallied by his bravery and they, they fight back. Uh, and I mean, they lose a lot of men. And then it cuts to the next scene after the battle. And General Jackson, he, he's down by one of the dead soldiers and he's, he's upset. And, and a captain comes to him. And, and the captain says in this, General, how is it that you can keep so serene and say so utterly insensible with a storm of shells and bullets about your head? How, how did you stay so calm? How were you not afraid? How were you not freaking out? when all of this stuff was going wrong around you? Here's how Jackson replied. Captain Smith, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself with that, but to be always ready whenever it may overtake me. If this was the way all men lived, then all men would be equally brave. Tonight, folks, if we can grasp God's sovereignty, we can live with bravery. We can live with a little bit less fear. We can live with a lot more confidence. And we can live with comforting trust in a God who is in control and is looking out for us and looking over us. Remember the Lord, oh, remember that He is in control. Remember the Lord, oh, He's watching His children. He cares for you. Remember the Lord, oh, oh, Let's pray together. Almighty God, you are the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. You are the one who has a right to rule as you see fit. You are the one who has the right to do as you please. And Lord, we cannot even fathom your sovereignty. We, we can't get our heads around it. And it leads us to all sorts of difficult questions 
and it leads us to, to some fairly significant problems. But Lord, we affirm tonight that we do believe that you're in control. And Lord, I would pray for each of us tonight that we would recognize that, that your sovereignty in our lives has produced so much good and that your sovereignty in our lives has produced so much glory for yourself. And Lord, we thank you for your, your sovereignty over us and in our lives. Lord, tonight we pray that each of us would leave here remembering that you're in control. When life seems like it's falling apart, when suffering comes, when death ensues, when the nations are raging around us, when life seems out of control, help us, Lord, tonight to remember that you're in control and that you care for us. And Lord, help us tonight to recognize that, that even though we might feel in control of things, that ultimately we're not. And so help us, Lord, to entrust ourselves into your plan and to your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.